number 655. We've been asked to mark that, and not only are we happy to do that, but also excited are we, as always, to be able to come together as we are this evening. As I look over the, the gathering, the assembly, I realize, as uh, many of our members, of course, but as, as we're often blessed with visitors have come our way, and as mentioned earlier, we're certainly thankful for the presence of every individual that's here. It's our earnest hope that our worship will not only please God, but that it'll also be a blessing in a very real way to us. The lesson this evening, as I somewhat mentioned as a part of the, of the serv service this morning, will have to do with the title you can see on the wall behind me. How God Spoke, How God Speaks, and How Do We Know? I would be perhaps uh, certainly in position to say that uh, the Vacation Bible School that took place at, uh, up in Overton County back last month, and I was privileged to speak there, this was a part of the, of the lesson that was delivered then. I've somewhat modified it, or at least I hope improved it somewhat for the cir circumstances of our gathering, but it is a very fundamental question, and it's a matter that I would invite us to give some consideration to this evening. In some ways, I would think it fair to say it is the most basic and certainly one of the most fundamental questions that you and I can ask. How do you know what God wants from you? How do you know that what you're doing is in fact satisfactory to Him? How do you know that the particulars of some service are pleasing in His sight? After all, how sorrowful must one be if you must say, I don't know. If you're merely offering or worshiping Him with the hope that it's okay, or that some element of service is acceptable, then one is hinging all of eternity on uncertainty. How do you know? And so tonight's lesson, how did God speak in days gone by? What if we use the Word of God with some impressive considerations about the particulars of that answer? And then... Let's transition to today. How does He speak today? And then more pressingly, how do you know that's the way He speaks? I hope that you still have your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 1. The first three verses of that chapter is where we will encamp for much of our service this evening. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. It is for that reason that on this next slide, I would like us to do two things. One of which is this. Let's highlight the nature of that passage as it addresses the topic before us this evening. And then, with that in mind, let's take a very brief analysis of the statements of that passage. Brother Dennis read it just a moment ago, but it reads like this. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. It's not to say that concludes the sentence, but at least let's stop at the reading of verse 3. And let's identify the following. You can see on that slide, I've asked you to notice a few of the particulars based on the words that the inspired writer utilized. 
it perhaps all begins like this. Did you notice the very first word in the very first verse of this book is God? You and I realize that He is the principal person of the entirety of the Bible. Yahweh is His name. In Exodus 3 verse 14, when there, you may remember that He Himself was asked, when Moses said, what name do I call you? And He said, I am that I am. He identified the majesty and the endlessness of His existence. He is the Creator, speaking into the nature of existence, the greatness of His power in ways we've seen in the Word of God. Not only that, you might appreciate this. It next says that this being, this God, at sundry times. That word sundry is probably a word we don't use a lot in English anymore. You may have heard it in days gone by, but probably it's rarely utilized. I would invite you to notice the Greek text, or at least the emphasis of it, it literally means this, in many parts. You may see translations that will render that passage in various ways. I suppose there are a number of thoughts that may come to mind as it touches the consideration of that particular phrase, but may I at least suggest this, could it have in mind the thought of a gradual revelation of the greatness and the grandeur of God's will. We'll have more to say about that a bit later in the lesson this evening. But for now, look at the phrase that comes next. At sundry times and in divers manners. The idea behind that phrase, as you can again see on the slide, literally means in many ways, identifying the fact that the particulars in which God manifested His will, communicating that, was certainly varied over the course of ages gone by. But isn't it interesting that the writer quickly says, "...in time past unto the fathers but the prophets." That phrase, in time past, literally means long ago. The Hebrew writer brings before the readers of his day, as well as you and me today, there was a time in the distant past when God revealed His will to those prophets. And as He spoke to them, we have come across the first element, at least, in our lesson. How did God speak? Let's close that slide like this. Those prophets that are here mentioned, oh, what noble individuals they were, powerful and bold and mighty in their defense of truth. And quite often they were individuals who found themselves in very difficult circumstances. Sometimes under the great threats of death and otherwise. And yet, they labored because when God roared, as the prophet Amos would say, I have to speak. Now, when Amos made that declaration, that God has declared, He has roared, and I must carry that message, so many of the prophets, it seemed, considered that so significant to their, to their livelihood. No wonder in light of that, the last thing on that slide. With God having spoken in days gone by, through the avenue of the prophets, revealing His will to them, the writer now says, "...hath in these last days spoken unto us, you and I, by His Son." 
Although it is true then that in days past, God did speak through, say, the prophets. And as we shall learn shortly, there were even other mechanisms on occasion. But the prophets bore the character and the might of His message. And He spoke to the human family through them. And now, He has spoken to you and me by His Son. There's no longer a large arrangement or set of individuals through which God has conveyed to the human family that which is His will. He speaks to us today through Jesus the Christ and the inspired will which the Christ has set before us. That brief analysis of that little passage, it seems to me, is worthy of a few remarks, some of which will greatly expand some of the ideas in that, in that particular passage. The first word again in the chapter is God. But if you set aside the prepositional phrases and come to the verb, God has spoken. It would seem to me an amazing consideration that God has spoken. And therefore, this next lesson centers around that idea. In His greatness in the magnificence of who He is. Remember, so powerful was He, He can speak things into existence by the power of His Word. He can cause things to happen. He can, by virtue of His will and the reality of His consequences, bring about anything that's consistent with it. Did Jesus Himself say, With God all things are possible? Matthew 19, 26. And yet here... God has spoken. He had a sufficient interest in the well-being of His creation that He communicated to them what His will was. He didn't leave it up to man to try and figure it out. He did not leave it to man in his hopelessness to try and figure out what was the will of God and what things ought to be the best. He had enough consideration and love and interest in His creation that He communicated it. He spoke. Even today, isn't that still one matter that we highly prize? When there is speaking, there is communication. There is the sharing of information. There is the bringing about of what is basically in the best interest of those who hear. God spoke. For that reason, look at what's next on that slide. How often does the Word of God remind us about the reality that God has spoken? You hold in your lap, or have direct reference, of course, to that which is His Word. The Word of the Lord. How many times throughout the pages of the Word of God is, in fact, the Bible called the Word of God? And notice the phrase, Word of God, would indicate that which He has spoken that which He has conveyed. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You'll notice then that God has spoken, but the nature of that which He has delivered, this which is His Word, is inspired, literally breathed of Him, but did you notice in the next verse, verse 17, what was the purpose of it? That the man of God might be perfect. 
That is to say that you and I might know how to live, how to serve, how to worship, and how to go home to glory. The Word of God carries then that idea. It carries that power. You may notice the next thing then to challenge us is this. It is indeed true that in the ancient era there were many particular ways in which the God of heaven chose to communicate something. I have listed very briefly some of the particulars that might quickly come to mind. You and I easily remember there were times when God shared information by way of dreams. Do you remember the Egyptian Pharaoh that himself had a dream in Genesis 39? God delivered the interpretation of it to Joseph. And he thus knew what to do in preparation through not only the seven years of plenty, but the seven years of famine that were to follow. God chose a dream at that time to reveal that information. In Daniel chapter number 2, isn't it true there that another monarch had a dream? There it was Nebuchadnezzar. That Babylonian leader had a dream and it troubled him mightily. God delivered the interpretation to Daniel. And he shared that information not only with, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, but no doubt with many others as well. Interesting, that was one means in which God chose to communicate at that time. To that, why don't we add another one? Do you remember some instances in which individuals enjoyed visions that were made available from God? I will recollect Daniel. Isn't it true that over the last six chapters of his book, there were many visions which Daniel was able to appreciate and to understand the greatness of that matter? You and I remember the Urim and the Thummim, which particular individuals, namely the high priest, was able to enjoy communicative efforts from God to share what was the nature of His will. To say all of that is to say, God communicated with the human family, and He chose those mechanisms by which that was done then. But today we do not have Urim and Thummim, God does not send His information today by dreams. He does not send it today by visions. The inspired writer has just told us that although the predominant means of the ancient era was the prophet, today He speaks to us through His Son. As we come to the bottom of that slide, I chose to invite you to notice the number of times that that explicit phrase, Word of the Lord, appears well over 250 times in the Old Testament alone. You find the nature of this phrase reminding us that this precious book is not merely the result of human authorship, nor is it the result of the finest of human scholarship. It is the Word of the Lord. To, to note just a few of those, I would call to your attention the book of Ezekiel. In chapter 1, verse 3, God commissioned that prophet, You go and speak the word of the Lord to them. Well, how did Ezekiel have it? Because that's what God gave him. The word of the Lord. Maybe it is in that connection, or at least in that light, that you might now put back together that earlier observation we had made. God, who at sundry times, and that phrase, at sundry times, Indicative of, it would appear, a gradual revelation. 
Haven't you often been impressed that as you and I are students of the Word of God, we come quickly to observe the following. There was a progressiveness to God's revelation. He didn't tell Adam everything that he later told Abraham. He didn't tell Abraham everything he had later told David. He didn't tell David everything he would later, let's say, tell Zerubbabel. And he didn't tell any of them what he's told you and me. There was a progressiveness, a movement, if you please, in fulfillment to the grandeur of what it was that God revealed. I've asked you to notice a few names. Think about what he told Eve. It's true, she and Adam had just partaken of the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3. And you may remember that to her, God particularly said in verse 15 of Genesis 3, that speaking about the, thy seed, the seed of the woman, that there was going to come a time when in fact the seed of the woman will crush or bruise the head of the serpent. Isn't that amazing? I'm sure Eve didn't understand all of that, but she was told it. Amazing that as you and I have turned the pages through 4,000 years of human history, then you and I come to realize the greatness of what it was that was told to her. But now, look at the next one. I've asked you to consider Abraham. In Genesis 22:18. this was many years after the day of Eve, and yet to Abraham, God said, In thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Did Abraham, you think, fully know how that was going to happen? I'm sure he didn't know all of it. But he knew that some through one of his descendants, there would be a blessing upon the entirety of the human family. But it would not be until the coming of the Christ. Galatians 3.29 would tell us as the fulfillment of the marvel of that passage. Try the next one. In Genesis 49.10, we now are several generations removed even from Abraham. But now... It was something interesting told to him. It would be through your descendants that the Shiloh will come. Shiloh, the Prince of Peace, the one that brings peace. Do you begin to see that there was a progressiveness to that revelation and later David was added to the list? Maybe it is in that connection one last thing. Aren't you and I in a position to read the famous words of Paul in Galatians 4? Where there it says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. The Lord came at the right time, in the fulfillment of those events that were preparatory to it. And therefore, in that connection, we notice it at sundry times, would seem to suggest that God revealed various pieces when the human family was ready to receive it. What about lesson number three? His Son. God now speaks through His Son. The usage of the prophets in days gone by, and you may notice at the bottom of that slide, I've asked you to appreciate the structure of this sentence. It really does speak volumes, doesn't it? Would you again observe the subject of the sentence is the word God, Take aside the various prepositional phrases and the clauses and find the verb. God hath in these last days spoken by His Son. 
That's what it says. And therefore today we don't look for dreams or visions and we don't look for small, still voices in the night. When we look for a message from God, we look for what the Son has said. We look for what the Christ has revealed. And it's no wonder then that the Word of God occupies such a high position. And don't you find it intriguing that the opening statement in John's Gospel account is this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word, Word, that is used to identify the Christ or refer to Him is that Greek word logos. And it identifies that again, which is communicated a word. And thus Christ presents to us, delivering to us that word today. He is that word. Let's make this observation. That means today, then, that the prophet for our age is none other than Christ. It is true that there have been men who have the nerve to claim that they have in some sense acted as a prophet for God. Muhammad fits into that category. That supposed founder of the Muslim religion, he is lifted very highly as the prophet today. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says today God speaks through His Son. It doesn't say Muhammad doesn't say any of the others who have claimed to be the prophets of God today. No wonder then in that connection, why don't we let the Bible speak for itself? Wasn't it true that Moses highlighted that truth in Deuteronomy 18? He said, there's coming a time and a day that there will be a prophet not unlike in some character myself, but he will be greater than I and he will be the spokesman. If I may paraphrase part of Deuteronomy 18. When we turn to Acts chapter 3, Peter quotes that passage and says it's Christ that fulfills it. He is the prophet that fulfilled that statement by Moses, and he is the prophet today. Is it any wonder then that we give such interest in the Bible? It is God's manner of speaking today because Jesus, His words are found within it. Let's close that slide then like this. What absolute authority rests in the Christ? He Himself declared that all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28, 18. To this point, may I say, we have thus learned how God did speak in days gone by, and we've been reminded how He speaks to us today. But I would offer that remaining question will occupy the rest of our time tonight. How do you know? How do you know that's the exclusive way He speaks today? We have highlighted Hebrews chapter 1, but I think it would be fair to say how we know alone could occupy a number of sermons. And needless to say, I'll be brief, but I'll just bring a few things to your consideration with the hope that maybe in future days we may look at some of them in more detail. But the ideas I will offer are these. How do you know? First things first, the very nature of the Bible. There is something incredibly unique about it. There are many individuals through the ages that have at least been willing to admit that. 
But you and I take that a step further. It's not merely unique because of particulars, but it's unique because God wrote it. But alone, it surely is interesting to note the particulars. I've asked you to appreciate the authorship. Different men actually penned it. We know roughly 40 individuals wrote it. Now that by itself is interesting because since their characters were so different, some of them were highly regarded individuals like Solomon. He was the son of a king and he became a king. Luke was a doctor. But there were others who wrote that were very meager in their character and their nature. Amos was a farmer. You and I remember other writers were Gentiles, such as Luke. But to say all of that is to say, with so many different men writing over such a long period of time, would it not be expected that there would be discrepancies, errors, mistakes, contradictions, and things like that? But in fact, there aren't any of them. And the fact that there aren't any, again, casts an incredibly long shadow over the uniqueness of this volume. To that, might I invite you to note another one. As we noted earlier in 2 Timothy 3, what is it that it's profitable for? Doctrine, correction, reproof, instruction in righteousness? Therefore, you find that a sense of goodness attached to it regardless of culture and regardless of ethnic background. Everybody everywhere can be benefited by it. It'll be a blessing to their society and a blessing to their persons. What other book might so readily fit into that category? Not only might you appreciate the nature of the book, look at the second observation I'll invite you to make. The way in which predictive prophecy has a bearing on this subject. Now the concept, the idea is easy enough to say, we do not know the future, the specifics of it at least. You and I plunder around in the dark in the sense that the specifics of tomorrow we do not know. And the further into the future you go, the less anybody can be sure. In fact, wouldn't you say that a person would almost be in a position to laugh at them if they made you a claim of something in specific detail that's going to happen 300 years from now? Who would have the nerve of calling by name somebody that's going to live and what that person will do 300 years from now? Man doesn't have any idea. You and I struggle in regard to tomorrow, much less centuries into the future. And yet, when we come to the Bible, we find precisely the matter of predicted prophecy. Needless to say, so much might be said. I will just call this before all of us. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, the inspired prophet Isaiah declared as God spoke through him that it is I, God, who knows the end from the beginning. There's nothing concealed from me. God knows tomorrow as well as you and I might have some knowledge of the features of today. But in addition to that, look at that next set of verses with me, please. Because I've asked you to notice just a handful of Bible examples. These alone are staggering. They are very compelling. 
Let's start with Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 36. There we find very carefully that a event of history is detailed. It's a group of people who go into captivity. Now maybe that doesn't seem surprising. There are nations that rise and nations that crumble. There are oppressors that rise and there are those that obviously come their way. But the interesting thing is, hundreds of years earlier, in Deuteronomy 28, God had specified element by element what would happen to those people. And it happened. It happened exactly as He said it would. How'd Moses know in Deuteronomy 28? Because God told him. And it was the same God, of course, who oversaw the events of 2 Chronicles 36. But let's look at an even more impressive one in some regard. I have saved it until this point. Isaiah 44, as well as chapter 45. It was at that time that, again, the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through him, made an observation. God's people at that time, of course, were headed to captivity. They were choosing to be rebellious. They were choosing to be disobedient. And God said, you're going to captivity. But God went so far as to say, that captivity will not be permanent. But there's going to be a king named Cyrus, and under his reign, he's going to let you come back to this place. He will release you from captivity. I would offer you and I to think somewhat about that. When Isaiah wrote that, it was almost 300 years before Cyrus was even going to be born. And God called by name the name of the leader who was going to let God's people be released. And Cyrus was his name. When you and I turn to the book of Ezra, we find exactly the man named Cyrus, and we find indeed that God's people were released. How did the Bible writer know? God told him. God overrules, you see, in matters like this. I hope you and I can keep in mind then Cyrus is an example that this book had predicted prophecy within it, foretelling events that were going to transpire. I think we'd be remiss not to mention one more. What about Jesus the Christ? The Old Testament is filled with references to what He was going to do, what He was going to endure, and what would ultimately transpire relative to Him. A thousand years before Jesus was born, David prophesied that He was going to be crucified, prophesied that He would be so mistreated, prophesied that He would be betrayed by a friend. How did David know a thousand years in advance? It's because the Holy Spirit had revealed it to David, and David had written it down. The ideas of predictive prophecy shout loudly, that that's one means by which we know that what the Bible says is right. Let's transition to the next slide and observe the following. May I offer science as an additional consideration? Now you may at first think, well, isn't science contradictory to the Bible? And there are many who would like for you and me to believe that it is. As far as I know, there is no fact of science contradictory to the Bible. Not a single known truth of science that is contradicted by the Bible. 
Now, there are many claims of science that are contradicted by the Bible. But let me just offer you some of these thoughts. It is true that there are things in the Bible that are known to be true today, scientifically, that were not known to be true at the time the Bible was written. But the Bible had these ideas within it. It presented these concepts. And why don't we start in Job 26-7, one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. And yet in that passage we find this remarkable statement, the earth is hanging on nothing. Have you seen the pictures of where our astronauts in space turn their camera back and as you look upon earth, there's nothing around it. It's not as though there's a support that is holding it up. It's not as though there's a gigantic chain that's holding it in space. It's hanging there on nothing. Job didn't know anything about gravity as you and I do, but how did he know to write that? In that very same verse, it makes observation that in the empty place of the north, astronomers now know that if you turn your telescope in the direction toward the north star, Polaris, that there is a great dearth of stars. They just aren't nearly as numerous in that sector of the sky. How did Job know it? Long before Galileo invented the telescope. Interesting, isn't it? Look at the next one. In Jeremiah 10 verse 13, the prophet Jeremiah speaks about what we now would call the hydrologic cycle, the cycle of water. Now, I'd be quick to point out our scientist friends didn't fully appreciate that until only about 200 years ago. How did Jeremiah know it so many thousands of years ago? Doesn't it at least highlight in us the appreciation that the Bible writers were given information beyond the knowledge of science of their day? What about another one? I've asked you to consider Isaiah 40, verse 22. Now, that particular passage speaks interestingly about this. You and I may well have heard, we know the earth is round. The ancients didn't know that. There were some who speculated it was flat, some who speculated that other kinds of geometric shapes. But Isaiah pointed out that there was a circle to earth. Isaiah wrote that a long, long time before science agreed to it. How did he know? How did the writer appreciate the circle of earth apart from the revelation of God to, to, toward that effect? I would simply offer this thought as we close that particular. Science has much to say. All those times when in the arena of science we now know something, we might ask, how long has it been known? And what about those instances in which the Bible writers referred to that long before science came to understand it? Is that not a testimony to the ingenious writer behind this was above man? It was none other than God. Finally, what about miracles? Now, you and I appreciate the Word of God has much to say about miracles. These particular manifestations in which the laws of science are set aside, in which for some period the laws of science are superseded. Well, needless to say, 
mankind cannot set aside the laws of science. But there have been instances in the Word of God in which that happened many times. Does that, doesn't that indicate that when there's absolute testimony to those events, that there had to be something related to it that was above the human family? I've mentioned the resurrection. Paul, with confidence, was able to say, I saw the risen Lord, and 500 others have seen Him too. And there wasn't a single person that called what Paul said into question. They agreed to it. Now, if there was a resurrection of the Christ, doesn't that indicate a power higher than man was at work? And doesn't it indicate that what the Bible has said all along is right? When you give thought to the miracles and the other things that we've at least mentioned this evening, doesn't it point out by way of consequence how God did speak, how He is speaking today, and how you and I can know? We treasure so highly the Word of God and the absoluteness of what it declares. And we are never thus desirous of inserting our opinion or that which we perceive to be the case, but rather... We stand on a thus saith the Lord. Is it any wonder that the famous question that Paul asked, What saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3. Paul wasn't interested in what scholarship of man might indicate. He wasn't interested in what the nobility of man might suggest. What he was interested in is what the Scriptures say. How do we know? I've offered you four, and there are many other things that might be added to that list but at least some things that should help provide confidence in you and me that the Bible really is correct, it is right, and it is His Word. Tonight, if there's anyone in this audience that has allowed your life to come to a point wherein you're not a faithful servant to the God of heaven, I hope you realize the urgency of your decision and the placement in which you now are in life. You're treading not only thin eyes, it is eternally dangerous. Don't you want to make a change? The Bible calls that repentance. If you've never become a Christian, please think with urgency about that matter. And if you know wrong from right and you know Jesus died for you and you have a knowledge of the plan of salvation, you need to come forward tonight. Don't wait any longer. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If you have begun the Christian walk, but at this moment you're unfaithful, you've allowed the thoughts of men to cloud your understanding. You've allowed the claims of men to distort your view of Bible inspiration and Bible Scripture. You know, you can make that right. Or maybe I should say, God can make that right for you. He'll forgive you of those sins, but you've got to repent of them and confess. And tonight, we'd be honored to pray on your behalf. If we could be of assistance or help in any way, this song of encouragement has been chosen. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?